Welcome to the Cinematic Pursuit, hosted by Steve and Matt. Available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Produced by Matt Bauer and Steve Craig. Music from freemusicarchive.com. For press opportunities, advertising inquiries, and information on the cinematic pursuit, contact cinemansteve at gmail.com. Episode 3, Anderson Cowan. Didn't know what to expect uh, when I heard about groupers, and then I watched the trailer, and I still didn't know what to expect. When I saw it, it really was something else. I'm really happy to talk with him. He made a quality film I would definitely recommend. It's a lot of fun to watch and uh, be advised. Not great internet connection, but I have a sexy voice. Steve has a sexy voice. And I'm sure Anderson does too. All right, so Anderson Cohen, normally we start this by asking at what point or how did you fall in love with filmmaking? In your case, it's not just filmmaking, you're a radio guy. Did that come first? The plan was to just do radio while I was in film school and to pay the bills and then start making movies, right? Like that's everyone's plan when they're in film school, but that never happens. The radio gig was so plush and bred such complacency that I stayed there for almost two decades kind of live life and the first thing i would hear in my head every morning is you're a real loser when are you gonna make a movie and uh i finally did that hey never too late never too late how did you get into radio then uh you guys ever heard of scott farrell for all the bench shake it up no nope. uh, i can't say i have no <laughs> he was uh, actually he's still on on the radio he uh he was on klsx out here which was stern station a big fm talker and uh it's kind of a long story but i, I broke my back uh when i was early 20s I was on a shit ton of uh, opiates. Uh, my doctor prescribed me 22 Vicodin a day for my broken back. What I've learned since is people that are on opiates uh, love to listen to the spoken word more than music. And I, mm. I didn't know that at the time, but I got, I got really into talk radio while I was just laying around healing. It's a good time for, for uh, spoken word stuff because of the opiate crisis, I guess, right? <laughs> so I came obsessed with this, uh, this new personality named Scott Farrell, who was on uh, Stern Station, 97.1. And... Uh, after listening for months, uh, I, he did a remote show, and I went and I, I met him at, at a bar where he was doing the show live. I, I had a few uh, drinks, and he liked the cut of my jib, and he invited me down to the studio the next night, and I just never left. I went every single night for three to six months until I learned everyone's job on the crew and uh, ended up producing the show. That's how it started, and then I fell in a love line after his show got canceled. I saw your pitch video for groupers and we'll get to that eventually, but it, it, it came on there like you were like hosting or producing like five, 10 different shows at once or something like that. Where do you find the time? It's never good times when you have to do a bunch of like part-time gigs, right? Cause you don't get the overtime and, uh, or the benefits or anything, but yeah, uh, I, I get the time by not sleeping when, when, and when it calls for that. So I'm down to four different shows right now. Uh, a week, as well as the movie, uh, which is its own, you know, thing in, in itself. And then uh, the main gig that I have, though, is raising my two-year-old, which is kind of a full-time gig. How long were you in radio before you decided to uh, start doing the film? And, and what was that decision? Well, I was writing the entire time. I was keeping the, the dream alive. And, you know, I was watching movies like, obsessively. I always have. And uh, I actually started one of the uh, the film podcasts that I've been doing for over a decade now. Uh, well, over a decade ago, uh, during when I was still on Loveline, I started doing the Film Vault Weekly, which I continue to do. And thank God, that's the audience that um, I cultivated over the last decade plus that helps in large part fund groupers. But uh, to answer your question, I was writing constantly. I was the douchebag that you saw in the bar writing in his little 
and his little moleskin. I've written a number of scripts. Uh, Groupers just happens to be the cheapest one that I wrote. So that's what I started with because I could actually raise the money for that one. But you made a number of shorts before that. So I kind of want to talk about that. How you, how did you develop in terms of like moving forward with shorts? How did it start at the very beginning? Let's start with that. Well, I made a few in film school, which are fun and they're always trite. And, you know, I look back at all of the shorts that I've made and I just wince. But um, it was t- probably five, six years ago now that I was talking to my buddy from film school that, uh, who ended up being the DP of Groupers. And he's worked on everything. He actually did the dream. He actually started working in film right after film school. And one of the first movies that Milan Janison ever worked on was uh, The Room. And then he's worked on everything ever since, like every Transformers movie, uh, Dunkirk. He was like in, in, in over the overseas for like six months on Dunkirk. Um, he just worked on the Ford Ferrari movie. Uh, he works on all the big stuff. And so we're really tight. And I said, dude, uh, we have to start making some stuff. I have to start directing. Let's let's do some stuff. So I had a script ready to go, a short script about a guy that thinks he invented this great invention where you it's called a pedo instant. And you can make yourself look like a like a pedophile. Uh, at the drop of a hat, if you feel like somebody's getting too close to your personal space to repel people <laughs> it was on the spectrum, and it was a comedy, obviously. So I wrote that, ready to go. We had a great deal with Panavision. We had a full package, and uh, and then Panavision says, yeah, you guys can have this you know, $500,000 package for free because we love Mickey, we love Milan, Janison, uh, but you need the production insurance. And we weren't counting on that, and the production insurance cost a fortune. And we realized that uh, the production insurance for two weeks, you guys probably know this, uh, for a few hundred dollars more, we could get it for the full year. So we ended up getting it for the full year, and I just cranked out as many shorts as I could in that year using actual equipment and Mickey as my actual DP. And uh, we ended up making five shorts, and I got all of them into festivals. And that was kind of like school, film school 2.0. And yeah. man, was unglamorous. And I wasn't expecting glamour in the in the shorts world, but it was like four in the morning, and I was coming back from Panavision after unloading the entire van by myself. I went to my house, put my bike in the back of the van, went and dropped off the van like you know three miles from my house, riding my bike home. I almost got attacked by a vagrant, and I'm just like, this is movie making, man. This is the real deal. Oh my gosh, that's a hell of a hustle. So then, what was the next move after that? Because you've done more than five then. You, you've gone over 10, according to IMDb, right? I think 10 shorts. Uh, and there's still a couple that I haven't finished. And I just, it kills me, guys. It kills me. Werner Herzog's the number one rules never abandon a film. And I've abandoned two of them. Ah, kills me. Now, now I'm just going to be thinking about that. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I got the, I got the shorts out there and I was feeling pretty good. Cause it was really important, too, for anyone who's listening, who's thinking about making their first feature. Get around the big equipment and get on an actual working set, even if it's a small one. Get beyond just, you know, doing stuff in your backyard with your friends. Uh, get to a place where you have screens up and you have like a, a big real camera if you can uh, so that you're not intimidated by it when you're actually doing the feature. Uh, I was really happy that I had a lot of that experience under my belt by the time I got to the feature, else I would have maybe frozen up, froze, froze up on, on the set. So I came up with the idea, the initial idea of groupers, kind of stumbled across it, the absurdity of it all. And I was talking to the wife about it, and I said, I think I might make like a 45-minute long short. I never admit this because I don't want people to think that, oh, it's a 45-minute short that he just added to, which is not the case. But sure. this is like in the initial, like when I first started writing it, and uh, my wife, uh, she's a social worker, like polar opposite of me, and uh, she's been putting up with this movie-making stuff for a while now. And she just says, she looks at me, and she goes, enough with the fucking shorts, Anderson. Just make a feature already. And I'm like, Done. Uh, Loveline ends after a 35-year run. I, I don't have a job. Uh, I, this is three months after I find out that my wife is pregnant with our first child. And that's when I tell her, hey, honey, I'm going to uh, raise money for that absurd idea that I told you about called groupers. And um, 
that's how it all started. <laughs> Going into the topic of raising money, because I'm actually trying to get a short film funded through Seed and Spark as well. So I'm also part genuinely curious. You said most of that funding and support also came from the audience you built over uh, the past decade. So did those two ever coincide or did you get some sort of angle out of Seed and Spark? I used Seed and Spark to uh, send my audience to raise the money during the campaign. Um, and the first thing I did was hire a, uh, um, a crowdfunding coach, which I think was definitely worth his cut. So he, cause I'm not real good with the social media. Uh, sure. I think I'd rather talk in the microphones. I, and I, I don't really post many updates, which I, I need to do be better at, but I was intimidated by the whole thing. And a lot of it is Facebook and Twitter, obviously, you know, getting the word out. So hired a, a crowdfunding coach. His name's Justin Giddings. And I, if you're thinking about doing this, I really think that it's, it's worth that and then he takes like a, a part of the back end but you know you have way more back end to give because of his help and um yeah we ended up raising uh, we set up to raise seventy five thousand. we raised just shy of eighty five thousand. by the time that everyone takes their cuts and and uh, you pay out the perks and stuff we we're left with around sixty five seventy thousand. okay and the rest of the money came has been coming out of my pocket <laughs> and mickey's pocket over the last uh, few years but yeah, the the thing was with crowdfunding. There's so much noise out there. Uh, you really got to put your best foot forward, and I think working with uh, an expert is is key. How would you get a hold of those experts to work on that stuff? Uh, my producer, who he was the very first person other than Mickey that I brought onto the project. Uh, he had worked with the crowdfunding coach on his prior feature film that he produced. Um, called the axiom and max landworth was my, my producer and he, he said hey you, you should really look into this guy so they're out there you can google search him probably justin is uh, he did wonders for me uh and it's a lot of stuff that made me uncomfortable i didn't do everything he told me to do but like he has really cool tricks like where you can pull every email from every facebook friend you have like there's a back door where you can get their emails this is years ago it might have changed now so now i'm sending emails to everyone that i'm friends with on facebook not Facebook messages and they're getting personal emails saying, Hey, I'm about to start raising money for this project. I see. That's crazy. I didn't even hear about Seed and Spark till earlier this year. So it's been around for a little bit then, right? Yeah. I mean, I used them three years ago and I found them by mistake because I was getting married and then the kid was coming and, you know, there's all these registries and, and I thought that I had invented and invented this new crowdfunding uh, model, which would be like register. Uh, like you can, you know, you can sign up and you could like pay for craft services for the movie and or you could, you know, help pay my, my an actor, almost like sponsor an actor. So I, I thought this is great. I can not only use this model to raise money, uh, but also I can maybe actually build uh, like a site out of this or something. And I did a quick Google search and immediately Seed and Spark popped up because they they had a similar model at one point. So that's how I found them. And then the more I read about them, the more I liked them. Because there's so much noise, guys, on, on you know, everything, Indiegogo, Kickstarter. Seed and Sparks seem to be more curated. I like the two girls that run it a lot, too. So now you've gained all that experience from doing short films. Uh, let's go into the feature film. What was uh, pre-production like, starting with that? Uh, started with the, the raising the money. So this is, you know, totally soup to nuts. Uh, it started with hiring the producer, then raising the money. And that took, I think it was 45 days. My son was actually born in the middle of the campaign. Um, and then once we got the money, uh, we got the money sometime in November and things started moving along pretty quickly after that. I think we got the money in November 2016 and then we shot uh, the movie in end of March of 2017. So you get the money in place. It's 
crazy because like it shows up in your account and you're like oh my god look at all this i've never seen so much money this is fantastic so <laughs> do you think for a second like we can just run with this money that was my first update after we got green late was i uh, thanks a lot guys i'm going to switzerland <laughs> thanks suckers love it <laughs> but then you start um it, it was really helpful to having a producer who had at least one feature under his belt because he had a bunch of crew that he had worked for with before that he could vouch for. And uh, we started doing the interview process of who we're going to crew up with. And Mickey, my DP, he had his own guys that he had worked with on all these big movies that were willing to do favors for him. So we had like a real cool. camera crew on set. Um, and then it's all scheduling and finding the house because uh, groupers, as you guys know, a, a lot of it, takes place at that house. Did you have a location scout for that? Not technically. A producer, Max, did a lot of the heavy lifting on that side of things, and he actually found exactly one house that would work for us, and uh, he found it on a site that anyone can just go on the site and put their house up for, for rent for movie crews, which I would not recommend. I mean, the, the Simpsons did an entire episode about why you wouldn't want to do that. It's just, it's not smart. But uh, thank God this guy had his house up. And it's funny because the script called for a an abandoned house. And this house was the polar opposite of abandoned. I hate to use the word hoarder because it's, it's rude, but it's not, but it is apt in this case. This, this guy had everything in this house. Really nice guy, but he had, God, I hope he doesn't ever see this. It was kind of useful at times because, like, if we needed some glue, like, we ran out of something, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I got some. And he would, like, to shuffle through, like, uh, drawers of things and find it. We had to, like, spend, like, half a day just moving everything out of his living room so that it looked like an abandoned house. Then we had to move everything out of his, his bedroom and move that into another room. And so we were playing Tetris in his house constantly. It's interesting. It's like a hoarder that found a way to market his hoarding or his, his, his uh, house that's in shambles to use for, like, horror movies and stuff. Is that about... I mean, I, I don't I don't know how many other productions have taken place there. And he had like a manager. So it was like a real deal. Like I, I dealt yeah. with her and she was like, you know, oh, you don't want to do this. You don't want to talk to him that way because it'll upset him and you don't want to, you know, screw up this deal. So he actually had management. Um, but I know he didn't make a ton from us. We only broke one tile in his front landing area, which kind of sucked. But it was like old 70s tile and the, the dolly got dropped on it and it just broke. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, it happens. And then the spray paint in the pool wasn't coming off. I'm like, um, I'm going to like own this house by the time we're done. Oh, so you guys, you guys did that. The spray paint wasn't there. No. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did all that and it rained torrential downpour for the three days leading up to the first day of the shoot. So I didn't get to do what I wanted to do, which was spend days in the pool making really cool artwork. Uh, we had to do it pretty quick, but it works because I mean, it should look like, you know, just idiot teenage hooligans. You definitely pull it off, man. I it definitely, yeah, I'm surprised that someone lives in that house. I want to talk about then the, the, the cast, because that's obviously something that really sells this. I mean, glad you talk about the cinematography, the locations, everything is great. Uh, how did you, how did you cast up? Backstage, some something, something, casting agency. I can't remember the other one. And then we did all our um, auditions at CAST. And if you're a, a casting director or a director or producer, you can use the entire system for free. And they even give you uh, access to the rooms that you can block off. They give you a parking space. It's great. And uh, you can you can pull actors from all these different casting sites and use their space for audition for audition purposes as long as you uh, audition at least a few people from their network. 
So when it comes down to, you know, not having to work with a lot of people, you have very few locations, what was the amount of days of shooting and what was it like as far as trying to cover as much ground as possible in terms of pages? Yeah, we had 14 days to shoot this thing and it was a whirlwind. And I remember looking at certain days going, we're going to do 15 pages today. And everyone's like, yeah, we are. And I said, okay. And we did. And somehow we, we pulled it off and uh, I didn't have to make any compromises as far as we don't have time to do that. Uh, so I don't know if we got lucky. I know we got lucky with the weather. When you're, when you're as small as we were and that rain was coming, uh, guys, I, 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 I've never spent so much time looking at a weather app. It, it was like an obsessive video game that I couldn't win. And yeah. uh, I realized that if it, if, if, it, if it rained for a full week in the middle of our production and we didn't have production insurance that would have covered that, we would have just lost our movie. But yeah, the actors, a lot of that, and I can tell you, I, it, it's not that we just got lucky. Uh, the actors were paid for their time on set, but they weren't paid for the rehearsals and they all gave me a shit ton of rehearsals. And that's really what was key in, in a smooth production is because we all knew exactly what we wanted to do on the days that we were shooting and there was no figuring things out, which would be great to do, you know, down the road on my next film. I'd love to be able to have that kind of luxury, but I didn't, I knew I didn't have it on this one. So there was we all knew exactly what we needed to do and a couple there was a couple scenes where i i literally got one take and said all right moving on i got it and we did block shooting which is uh my scenes are particularly long i have a couple scenes that are like upwards of 30 pages and uh we would just run the entire scene all the way through and they call that block shooting and that saves a lot of time too what were you looking for because you have a couple of great like like i said the actors are great i know i already kind of asked about this but what was it like hank and frank being like these legit crust punk looking guys like is that something that that's just something you look for through thousands of headshots looking for like legit punk looking dudes yeah i was lucky in the one guy hank the main uh the alpha of the two he uh was an actor that i worked with when i was in film school he was in my my big thesis film project um many years ago and i never lost touch with him and i always knew that i wanted to work with him again and i knew he could pull off this role so uh, i already had him and then uh his buddy frank i just it was just more you know i wanted another bald guy i wanted nazi mm -hmm. punk type vibe yeah because mm -hmm. really the message that i was going for that the bigger message uh, even beyond homophobia is just group mentality and how uh you know if you if you don't evolve and hear other people's opinions you're going to end up like these two so they're kind of like what brad and dylan will become if brad and dylan continue on this path of intolerance interesting I yeah not like... not i could see the nazi punk thing working but with uh with Talkie, what's his name? Not Talkie. Talkie? Was that Talkie name? was the, the mute. Yeah, throwing him into the mix just made them real bizarro, almost like Mad Max, crusty punks, I thought. Yeah, I thought he was thought an was illusion cool. for a while, too, until like he was like <laughs> verified. Yeah, I keep the audience off balance quite a bit with this one. Yeah, between that and the sonic booms going on, and like they're talking about being in a, it, whether they're dreaming or not, and it's just like, wow, okay. So it's like, you know, the, the mystery elements, when they land, they really land hard, so I definitely yeah. appreciated those. Yeah, I like to pay things off. There's nothing worse than it's like, well, what the hell was that about? And I, the, the whole Sonic Boom thing was just another uh, plot device to help tie the stories together. So, like, you could hear it. Oh, oh, it's happening in this. That means that at the same time, that so right at this exact same moment, that's happening in the story that we just saw. So right. it's like a puzzle, a little bit of a puzzle. Yeah, I could see that. Speaking of pacing and the next chapters, I have to ask about like post and how much of a nightmare it was just to get the cut done. 
the worst. It's the worst, and there's there's no worse feelings. I I've I've read some great reviews because you know the movie comes out tomorrow, and mm-hmm. I knew the reviews were coming. And I've read some some wonderful reviews, and I've read some scathing reviews, and that feels awful. But I can tell you, nothing feels worse than the seeing the first rough cut of your of your movie. Uh, oh, it's gosh. just you just you. I think every I I think I read a quote from Scorsese who said, you know, there's not no worse feeling than seeing the first rough cut of your movie. And I think everyone thinks that they've lost their movie when they see that first rough cut. They're like, oh, my God, I don't have a movie. I, I think he, he starts his masterclass t- trailers uh, with that exact line where he's just like, if you're not feeling sick in your stomach from the first cut, something's wrong. That is it is. Because I was talking about it on one of my shows when I was going through this and somebody sent me that clip. And I'm like, oh, OK, I, I feel I feel a lot better now. Now you have your film. It's finished. You've shown people well, uh, what happens next. How do you get it distributed? Oh, yeah. Distribution. So um, started talking to a bunch of other people who have been down this road before and uh, picking their brain. And that's when I started learning about all the stuff that I had no idea existed. And I'm, I'm, I was embarrassed and ashamed to come this far, have an actual finished feature film and not even be aware of uh, film markets and their existence. So that's when I learned about the American film market, which is the biggest of all the uh, world film markets. Uh, it takes place every November in um, Santa Monica. And there's about three or four big film markets, but uh, American film market is the, the, the biggest. And uh, I dove into that at first and spent months uh, researching, uh, contacting the distributors that are going to be there, the aggregators, uh, producer reps, and I, I just a lot of busy work and emails and phone calls and set up some appointments, bought myself a badge and I didn't strike a deal there, but I did sign a producer's rep, which if you get a good producer's rep, they're really worth a lot. Um, the producer's rep that I got, Glenn Reynolds, yeah, he works, uh, his, his company is Circus Road Films. And what you get with a producer's rep, if they're willing to take on your movie because they like it and they believe in it, is they have a ton of contacts. Uh, they'll, they'll probably have 50, 60 contacts, well, more than that, but they'll narrow it down to their distributor contacts, distribution contacts that are looking for like your type of genre. In my case, it was a dark comedy. There's a whole method to the madness, but he waited for the film to get into a top 10 festival, which it did with CineQuest up in San Jose. And then he pitched all of his contacts and they know Glenn and they say, oh, Glenn picked up this movie. So that means it's gotta be of a certain quality. It's gonna, it's gotta have something going for it because Glenn doesn't pick up any, just any movie. He only does like 15 a year. And that's, that, that was the process. And it took us about two months of, of receiving offers and going back and forth and looking at deal memos until we landed with uh, global digital releasing. It's kind of a highly advised in your experience uh, to go through a film market uh, before kind of taking a stab at the film festival world? No, you do the film festival thing. I, I'm sorry, I skipped a step. Uh, you start doing the film festival thing uh, right away. Uh, you should start submitting because you're going to miss deadlines inevitably. Uh, there's film festivals all throughout the year. There's no one knows exactly how many festivals there are, but uh, I, I kept reading 3,500 to 5,000. So there's a lot of festivals, and you got to figure out which ones are worth submitting to because anyone can get anything into a festival if you go for the really, really low rung festivals. If you're just looking for laurel leaves and just tell, you know tell your friends and your parents that you got into a festival, you, you, you could do a small festival, but it's not going to do much for you as far as getting your, your movie sold. So you need to get into one of the top. Ideally, you get into TIFF or Sundance or um, uh, Tribeca. Those are the, the, the three big ones that are here in the States. And, or South by Southwest is, is the other one. Uh, but then there's also like six or seven other festivals that are considered 
top 10 festivals that will get the attention of distributors if you get accepted. So you start there, and all the while you're, you're researching American film market. Um, and if you buy a badge, I think any time of the year you can buy a badge and then you have access to their site and you can see who's going to be attending and you can start your research and you target distributors that deal with whatever genre of film you've made. And you can do this before you've even started shooting your movie. Uh, you, you, you probably should, actually. A lot of the business that's done at the American film market actually isn't even with completed movies. They don't really even look at completed films until the last three days, and they're there for like a full week. The first three or four days is all about giving finishing money to, to packages, that uh, movies that are trying to you know get the final pieces in place before they start production. Uh, but even if you're not going to make a deal at American film market, it's very educational and you really learn the business side of it uh it's a crash course in, in that and it's intimidating it's terrifying and it's the ugly side of, of hollywood but it's the necessary side of hollywood and i highly recommend you know you pay 250 for a badge and just go there and, and, and try and work it so what's your next move um this movie has to perform and from what i understand since the budget's right around 80 dollars it needs to do about that or better to uh get interest from from would be um, investors for the for the next project because I have a, a ton of scripts uh, I just wrote groupers I made groupers so that I could make the other ones I, essentially it's a stepping stone mm-hmm. and it's actually um, I have a, I, I, an entire trilogy that's all connected with comeuppance and this one my target was the homophobes the next one I'm targeting pedophiles and the third comeuppance movie that I really want to make is, is targeting uh, big game hunters like the guys that pay a couple hundred grand to go shoot giraffes in, in Africa. I want to fuck those guys up. Oh, shit. Shots fired. No and pun intended. Those, yeah. are all, those are all written, and uh, they just cost a lot more than Gruber. So uh, the next one with the pedophiles, that's about a million-dollar project. And it's not easy to you know go out there and raise a million dollars, especially if you've done nothing. So I'm hoping that now that I've done something, I can maybe get my foot in the door and, and you know get a couple meetings and maybe get some people uh, jazzed up about it. I'm excited about that one because that's I've talked about that for a while now. How there needs to be a movie where pedophiles are like the bad guys, and uh, I always think that that would be so difficult to make because Hollywood thinks that pedophiles are awesome. That's a good one. So I'm with you, man. That's awesome. Uh, at this point, is there anything you'd like to say to people uh, like us who are trying to figure out how to make their uh, film? Any any last words of wisdom from Anderson Cohen? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can you can tell that I talk a lot, and uh, I have a lot to say, and I, I'm really all about uh, sharing all of this new stuff that I'm constantly learning through this entire process. So I started a new feed. Um, it's on Cinematics is the name of the, uh, the 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 film review show that I do with my with my co-host, who's a, a film uh, critic. But I started a new feed on RSS 16 weeks ago now, and it's called I've Got a Movie to Make, and Every week on Thursday, I spend 20, 30 minutes just talking to myself about the process and what went into it and what's continuing in real time with marketing, with the release, uh, with a lot of the stuff that I talked to you guys about. So doing it for 116 weeks, and if I don't get to make my next movie within that a lot of time, uh, the wife is demanding that we move out of state and give up on, on my movie-making dream. So it's got a deadline. It's got to so, work. I'm on week 16 out of 116 weeks so far. And then I also do the Film Vault, which is the, the show that's got the big audience that I raise the money for the movie. And that that's uh, a weekly show that I've been doing for over 10 years now where I just talk about um, 
the movies that have come out in theaters and then we do a top five list every week of you know like this week we did top five uh, live action musicals Oh shit! Okay, nice. Yeah, because I was gonna say I knew you had film fault, and I was wondering what the differences were between the two of those. Cinematics was born out of a fight that I had with my co-host on the film vault, and I said, "Fuck you! I'm gonna go start another show," and I did. <laughs> <laughs> Do my own thing. Well, Anderson, it was really fun to watch Grouper, so I'm really looking forward to seeing that thing be available soon. I'm looking forward to your future films too, man. I, yeah, Groupers was great. I'm looking forward to what else you got, and uh, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on board and uh, chatting with us. Thank you guys very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Produced by Matt Bauer and Steve Craig. Music from freemusicarchive.com. For press opportunities, advertising inquiries, and information on the cinematic pursuit, contact cinemansteve at gmail.com.